Welcome to Revenue Harvest, a podcast about the fundamentals of sales leadership. Did you know most sales teams don't hit their sales targets and you can't afford to miss yours? This podcast will give you the answer to questions that will help you lead your team better, consistently exceed your sales targets, and make the most of your career. I'm your host, Nigel Green, and the whole idea behind these conversations is to learn from people who can make you a better sales leader. Let's get started. Welcome back or welcome to Revenue Harvest. In today's episode, I get the pleasure of sitting down with my friend, Rory Vaden. Rory is the New York Times best-selling author of Take the Stairs. His insights on helping people to build their influence have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, CNN, Entrepreneur, Inc., and several other major media outlets. He's a Hall of Fame speaker. His TEDx talk on how to multiply your time has been viewed three million times, and his company, Brand Builders Group, helps people to build and monetize their personal brand. Rory is also the editor of Success Magazine. He named my book Revenue Harvest. Yeah, I had a name for the book that wasn't nearly as cool as Rory's. In this conversation, we're going to talk about why you can't afford to have a personal brand. Uh, If you haven't checked out Rory before. You're going to love this conversation and I encourage you to go listen to him on Lewis Howes and the School of Greatness when this episode is over when you want to binge on Rory Vaden because he is binge worthy. Let's get to the show and let's welcome Rory Vaden. Rory, welcome man. How are you? Buddy, good to be with you. I am doing great. Good. It's really fun to have a friend on the show. It's not always the case. So to have a friend uh, is is a real privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those sorry, that don't know, I'm sorry that all of your other guests are jerks that are strangers that you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes we become friends after the fact. Ah, okay, okay. Sometimes it's like a it's like a first date, but that won't be the case here. Uh, for those that don't know, uh, Rory named Revenue Harvest the book. Uh, it had this other name that he quickly said, nobody wants that. Hmm. He said, you, when, when you think of titles, you have to fill in the blank. I want blank. Yep. And your audience, they want to harvest revenue. They don't want whatever that other title was. So thank you for that. Yeah, man, you're you're welcome. That That comes from the stupidest thing I've ever done in business, which was I named my second book, Procrastinate on Purpose, Um because I thought it was clever and countercultural and intriguing. And my TED Talk, which is the exact same content delivered by the exact same messenger, me, at the exact same moment in history, went viral because I called my TED Talk How to Multiply Time, which was both clear and what people want is to multiply time. They don't want to procrastinate on purpose. And so that that was, if I had called our second book, How to Multiply Time, I think we would have sold, I mean, we've sold tens of thousands of copies, but I think we would have sold hundreds of thousands of copies because the title went viral and, or the, the, the TED Talk went viral and the title plays, has a lot to do with it, which is, you know, I think in all things sales and marketing, clear is greater than clever. Clear is greater than clever. And everything that we should do in sales and marketing is about, res, is reducing the resistance are reducing the friction that somebody has to pass through in order to make a decision. And if I have to explain to you what procrastinate on purpose means, that creates friction. But if I just say, 
how to multiply time. I don't have to explain it. You go, yes, I want more time. This is for me. Um, you know, so one of, one of the most painful, but simple and valuable, uh, but lessons from one of the biggest mistakes that we've ever made in our career. So let's double click on multiplying time because right. everyone that's listening to this probably heard you say that and said, yeah, I want that. Mm-hmm. But you'll tell them that, well, they think that to multiply their time, they have to be a better manager of it. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. You can't manage it. Yeah, you can't manage time. I mean, that's that's the, it's the stupidest term that we use, like time management. You cannot manage time. Like you, time ticks on whether you like it or not, right? You can't pause it. You can't fast forward it. You can't rewind it. There is no such thing as time management. There is only self-management. You manage yourself. You, 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 you choose what you're going to do. And what most managers do is, is they try to do things faster. They think that efficiency is going to bring them more time. Efficiency is not bad. Efficiency, all things being equal, faster is better. But efficiency has a point of diminishing returns in terms of the value it provides to executives, which is that no matter how fast I move, there are new things that show up that fill that time. Um, and so the way that you multiply time is to spend time on things today that create more time tomorrow. There are certain things that actually would be less efficient today that would cost you time, that would take you time, that would be investments of time. But this is why we call the subtitle of the book, the five permissions to multiply time. If you give yourself the permission to do them, then by doing those things today, they create more time in the future. Um, it's the, you, the way you multiply time is giving yourself the emotional permission to spend time on things today that create more time tomorrow. You know, for example, let's talk sales speak since you and I both come from the, the world of sales, sales executives and sales training and et cetera. It's the classic dilemma that an, every entrepreneur faces is should I sell a customer or should I spend my time recruiting and training a salesperson who can like, should I sell a customer today, which brings revenue in the door, or should I spend my time recruiting, training, you know, motivating a, a salesperson who can sell tomorrow and who can then recruit and train other salespeople to sell tomorrow? So the there's not a right answer. It's not that one is better than the other. They are both necessary at different times in the business life cycle. The, the part that is important is to realize that the way you will multiply time is by spending time on things today that give you more time tomorrow. Selling a customer will never create more time for you tomorrow. It will, it will create more work for you tomorrow. But somebody has to sell a customer and you need more somebodies to sell your, to prospect and sell customers if you want to, if you ever want to break free of that yourself. That was how you multiply time. Over the long term, that is what separates exponential performers, exponential leaders, is they they understand that nobody has the time to develop systems and processes and tools to improve the strength of their sales team. Like who has time to sit around and update the sales talk, to create a better CRM, to write, you know, better email sequences, to develop, you know, whatever, stronger nurture campaigns, or to to, you know, recruit and develop another salesperson. 
you never have time for that. But if you don't make the time for that, you're, you're, you're trapping yourself to a, a lifelong prison sentence of having to do it all yourself. Um, and so this is a real dilemma for sales leaders because most of the sales managers in the world got promoted to be a sales leader because they were the top salesperson. Well, what got you here as a performer won't get you there as a leader. Uh, and and this, is, uh, this is what a lot of leaders struggle with. They get promoted in any position because they were really good at doing their job. But leadership is not about doing really good at your job. Um, as Andy Stanley says, is one of my favorite quotes, le quotes, leadership is about getting things done through other people. Your job is to scale the ability to get things done outside of yourself. But as a, as a producer, as a high level performer, we're used to, you know, being in control of our own destiny, you know, doing the, doing whatever it takes, getting the job done, hitting the deadline, saving the sale, making the quota, like, we take control in our, into our own hands and we make it succeed. And so we, and then we get recognition for that. But being a leader is totally different. It's, it's not about us saving the day or doing that work. It's about going, how many other people can I develop into those kind of people? And the more you maintain control, the more you, you center ownership and activity around yourself the more you trap yourself into this lifelong prison sentence of just doing it over and over. Even if you're really good at it and you're really fast at it, you never multiply. The way you multiply time is by spending time on things today that create more time tomorrow. You used the word prison sentence, and it's, um, it's distinct to me because when I quit being on a management team in May of 2018. It's the exact word I told my friend and the founder of the business that coming here felt like a prison sentence. Mm. And there are a lot of people listening that can resonate with that because if you look at th this notion of multiplying their time and having choice and autonomy is totally foreign because so many of the meetings that they're required to be in, they don't necessarily have a choice. You don't get to miss the end of month finance review, or you don't get to choose not to be on this Friday call. At least in their mind, that's the story they're telling themselves. So it's in their mind. It's so talk about mind. it. Yeah. Look, everybody thinks their situation is unique and that's why they're so busy. The truth is that your entire life was created by you. Either directly or indirectly, everything that shows up on your calendar was allowed to be put there by you, right? You have lots of options. You could quit. You could start your own thing. Or you could have a mature conversation with your boss and say, here's why I don't think I need to be in this meeting every week. Maybe I come in every other month or whatever. Like, uh, I don't know. Each situation is dependent, right? So I can't tell you what to do. But I would say this from my own life as an entrepreneur is the prison sentence, it's a mental prison of our own construction. Almost every limit we bump up against in life is a mental prison of our own construction. We think that we are somehow the helpless victim of circumstances forced upon us by the external world. It is not true whatsoever. We live in a world where your life was allowed by you. 
you are the reason you have the problem. You are the one who set up your every choice that you make has an outcome that has led to this. Now, it is it is I you have to understand that until you acknowledge that, you will always feel like the helpless victim of the world around you. You will allow yourself to maintain and be trapped. So the way you break free of that is saying, no, I'm in control of my life. I'm in control of my time. Nobody chooses what to do with their time except me. You have to embrace that before you can ever, un until you acknowledge that you are the problem for why you don't have time, you can never take on and wear the uniform that you also are the person with the solution to do something about it. So it is a, it is a very important necessary step that, you know, you're not busy. Like you are as busy as allow yourself to be, which means all of us are busy. Everybody is, 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 is busy, but everyone is also in control of what they want to do. That doesn't mean you don't have obligations and you have responsibilities and you have bosses, but you go, look, as the owner of, uh, a co-owner. Okay. So AJ and I are, my wife and I have been business partners ever since 2006, but as a, as a longtime co-owner of multiple businesses, one of my favorite things to hear is when somebody comes to me and says, I am in too many meetings or I am in this meeting and I'm not sure I really need to be there. In fact, one of the things that AJ did, she's our CEO at Brand Builders Group. I, I focus more as the CMO over, over, I kind of oversee marketing and sales, but she, she runs, she functions as more of the CEO, COO and CFO. Um, we're only three years into this new venture and we got about 45 people on our, our team. The, the, the company that we sold, we had about 200 people on our team. We started from scratch. We grew that to eight figures over 12 years and sold it also in 2018. But, um, AJ did a meeting, recently did a meeting audit in every single, uh, the, the leaders in the company, all of the senior leaders, she audited how many meetings they were in, in, and anyone who spent more than 15% of their time in meetings, uh, got cut. That is the maximum threshold that she set was you cannot be in meetings longer than 15% of your time on a weekly basis. So she audited it. Why? Because a true owner, a true leader, someone with true P&L responsibility understands that time is way more valuable than money. And if I have my best people locked up in meetings all the time, then they, they can't actually be on the, on the ground, leading people, doing things, interfacing with projects and customers and team members. Um, and so you've got to, you got to free yourself from that. So if you don't think you should be in a meeting, then bring up why, why is it not worth your time to be in a meeting? How could that meeting be run better or, at what frequency or interval do you need to be in that meeting? And what's the data that supports that? Um, you know, I, nobody, no owner is going to be upset by the idea that you're saying, I think I could use my time in a better way or say, look, there's something we're doing that feels unproductive. Um, but again, a lot of us don't do it because we're scared. It's not because we're trapped. It's because we're scared. Um, and so we have to kind of step up and go, look, this is, this is, this is how I feel. So you got to just, you got to have an honest conversation about that with, with your boss or, you know, whoever. So I love that about the 15% of no more than 15% of time in meetings. When I onboard a new sales leader to coach, before we even have our first call, they send me a screenshot week by week of the previous 90 days of their calendar. 
Mm, and, love and it. They want to, they're like, why, why do you want to see that? And I said, we'll, we'll get to it. But what I'm doing before I even speak to them is I'm looking in the same way that AJ was auditing meeting volume. I'm trying to discern and audit meeting type because when I look at the meetings, I get a sense for how many days are they spending in the field versus how many days are they spending doing anything, anything else that they could be doing. Are they spending time with top producers, laggards, the folks that are never going to make it? Are they spending time with customers? And you'd be surprised the number of sales leaders that have no time spent with customers. Mm-hmm. It's everything but being in front of the customer. So the point in all of that is what I end up finding is their priorities are misaligned with what's on their calendar. And you talk about a term priority dilution mm-hmm. and I think the calendar is just one of many ways in which it manifests. So let's talk about your take on priority dilution. Yeah, so priority dilution. So this actually comes out of our first book, Take the Stairs. And we talk about three types of procrastination. So classic procrastination is consciously delaying what you know you should be doing. That's what we all think of when we hear the word. So for, for a sales leader, it's training someone. It's close, It's like being in part of a big joint venture deal. Or, or, or you, classic you procrastination? No, classic, yeah. procrast, classic procrastination is I know I should make a sales call and I'm choosing not to do it. Oh, it's far simpler than that. Yes. Okay. Right. Far yeah. simpler. I know I should pay the bills and I'm, I'm, I'm choosing to watch Center instead. Right. That's classic procrastination. I know I should update my CRM and, you know, I'm just screwed, screw the CRM. Right. Like that's that's classic procrastination. The second type of procrastination is is more nuanced. It's what we call creative avoidance. Creative avoidance is different because it's subconscious. Right. Or it's unconscious. It's unconsciously filling the day with menial work or trivial work as a way of allowing yourself to feel productive when in reality you're using those tasks as a defense mechanism to avoid doing the things you know you should be doing that you don't feel like doing. So it's, it's, it's saying, Oh, I need, I do need to call this customer. Uh, because in reality, I know I should be making prospecting calls. This is probably more at the salesperson level than the sales manager level, but you know, it's going, Oh, you know, I need to get in, I need to get involved in this customer service issue rather than letting my customer support team handle it. Um, because I want to, I, I do it under the auspices of being service minded. But in reality, if you were to peel back the layers there, you'd go, this is just a fancy way of you dodging, making more prospecting calls. Yeah. Um, and so for the sales leader, it's, I really need to go see this rep in San Antonio that's struggling, but that's really going to be inconvenient because the flights aren't, they're not, they're not aligning with my schedule. So I'll just put it off to next week and maybe the flight schedule will be different. Yeah. It could be, it could be that kind of, yeah, it could be that kind of thing. It's anything, you know, it's, but it's, it's what's tricky is it's kind of like subversive. Like it's, it's happening beneath the surface of like, I'm convincing myself that I'm being productive by doing something more trivial. I'm organizing my desk instead Mm -hmm. of, instead of confronting my underperforming salesperson. And, and I'm, I feel productive. And by the way, here's how, you know, you do this, which is classic is if you, if you've ever completed something that wasn't on your to-do list, but then you add it to your to-do list just so you could cross it off. Um, 
we do that because the neuroscience of it is that when we cross something off, there's this release of dopamine from our brain. It makes us feel good. We're feeling productive because we're accomplishing a high volume of insignificant tasks and we actually feel good. We're actually addicted to it. We are addicted to it the same way that that somebody is addicted to substances. Um, we are addic addicted to completing insignificant tasks. But what we're really doing is we're avoiding the few but significant tasks that need to be done, like having a, an a, a honest conversation with a salesperson about why they're underperforming or why they don't update their numbers, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what creative avoidance is. Priority dilution is um, even more nuanced. Priority dilution is the chronic overachievers form of procrastination. So you would say classic procrastination is somebody who struggles with like laziness, okay, or 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 um, apathy. Creative avoidance is someone who struggles with distraction. They allow themselves to be distracted with the trivial. Priority dilution is someone who struggles with interruption, and and priority dilution affects the highest level CEOs, the the most successful high achievers, the top executives. Um, <clears throat> because th what's fascinating is this has nothing to do with being lazy or apathetic or disengaged like the first two, but it is effectively the same net result as a lazy procrastinator, which is we delay on our most significant tasks in the day because we allow ourselves to constantly be interrupted by whatever is latest and loudest. And so we allow ourselves to check email and respond to the, the email at the top of the inbox. We constantly and frenetically check our text messages and we're pulled in different directions. We are, we are, we are, um, you know, like we are responsive to what's happening instead of where we're reactive instead of proactive. And we carve out no time to do the significant things. What are the significant things? The significant things are the things that multiply time. Again, how do you multiply time? It's the things that you spend time on today that create more time tomorrow. Um, it is installing processes and procedures and spending time developing people and having difficult conversations. Um, for the most part, in the world of a sales executive, it, it comes down to processes and people um, and 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 creating the time. It's, you know, it's it's like creating the training that needs to be there so that we don't experience the issues that we're having consistently. But also at the same time, having to be aware of, am I, if, am I spending, to, am, am I allowing myself to spend time creating this training manual as a way of avoiding the difficult conversation that really needs to be had with my underperforming sales rep? So it's, there's not a, a right answer for any given moment. It, it, it is circumstantial. But it is the awareness of going, am I being creative avoidant? Am I allowing my priorities to dilute? Um, and most of all, am I, am I being intentional, conscious, deliberate, aware, and disciplined about spending time on things today that create more time tomorrow? Oh, that's so good. I think of, of an example that I know a lot of folks that I've worked with in my coaching business have experienced and. And I want you to, to see if this is priority dilution or, or maybe something else. I think it's priority dilution. And that is, so the goal 
the strategy of the business is clear and it's defined and the sales team is there to support those objectives. Maybe it's a revenue number, it's a certain product category, it's a, it's a number of customers acquired in a period, but it's clear the sales leader knows it and they've, they've filled their team. Sometimes they will have, it's inevitable, they have performers that aren't as good as they should be, but they're occupying a space. And so instead of recruiting and actively replacing them with someone that's not looking for a job, but could immediately come in and elevate the entire team, they wait until there's a performance issue, manage that person out, then go recruit. And what could have happened in with, with the right priorities and always recruiting the next best rep, it could have taken less than 30 days. It ends up being a 90 month, a nine month problem for the business. Is that, is that priority dilution? Yeah. I mean, that, that I, I would say in some ways that's creative avoidance because you're, you're just allowing a distraction to exist. You're accepting the mediocre. You're allowing it to, uh, to be there. You know, priority dilution would be, I want to fire this person, but you know, our biggest customer just called and they're going to pull back their order. And I, I have to go deal with that right this second. But you you can't really have priority dilution over a long period of time. You, uh, priority dilution over a long period of time really is creative avoidance. It's 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 avoiding the difficult. Here's here's what creative avoidance is. It's avoiding the difficult decision like that is what creative avoidance is. It is avoiding the difficult decision and masking it as productivity. Um now, what you're saying is 100% true, is this is the difference between recruiting and hiring. Most sales teams use the term recruit, and it's the wrong term. They don't actually recruit. They hire. They post a job of people who are available, and they take whatever whoever is the best of the warm bodies that shows up. It's not how you build world-class sales organizations. The way you build world-class sales organizations is you hunt, you pursue, you seek um, you go after, you chase the the best talent you can find, and then you recruit them and you tell them why they should join your team and how you show them how they can make more money, how they can make more impact, how they can have more fun, how they can be a part of a better culture. And you freaking sell them on coming onto your team the same way you're asking your salesperson to go hunt a sale. But most sales managers are weenies. They're scared. They're weak. They uh, they they are not willing to go. Uh, uh, like a sales manager's sales job is recruiting top talent, and they'll sit in an ivory tower and and they will they will condemn all their salespeople for not making enough sales calls and not being proactive. Meanwhile, they're not being proactive. They're not recruiting a plus players. Look at college sports, like look at college athletes and professional teams. They recruit. They track these kids from the time they're in eighth grade. They, they have, they have people who do nothing but go find talent. And then they, 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 they whine and dine them and they schmooze them and they, 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 they do everything they can within, you know, ethical boundaries, which they're all always pushing, um, to get the top talent because that, that's what you do. It's, it's, it's amazing how recruiting one top player raises the performance of the entire team. And there's countless sports analogies for that. 
Um, there's also CEO analogies for that. And so it's like, a, you, if you want to, if you want to become an amazing leader, you have, you have to become an all-star recruiter. So agreed. And it's a perfect segue to where I want to go with you next. Your new company, Brand Builders, works with individuals. You build yeah. the brands of individuals who want influence and impact, and they want to somehow use their own personal brand as a platform for greater good. Yes, which is, yeah, this entire interview is funny because this is this, well, everything we've been talking about is kind of our old life, like our old company. And yeah, so our our new company is 100% focused on helping people build and monetize their personal brand. And there is no shortage of sales leaders in the marketplace that have figured out this un, of, unmutable law that if you have an audience, you can parlay that even if you have a job, even if you still are a W-2 for a company, you have an ability to build a brand, build an audience, and parlay that to a better job offer, equity, a higher position. And you recently commissioned a study that talked about all the ways in which personal brand affects every buyer's decision-making process down to who are they going to date. And we're not going to get into to, to dating, but... Where I want to go with that is while it, it is absolutely true that there are sales leaders who have invested in building their own brand and they can not only use that as a recruiting tool, but also use that as leverage with an employer to say, you have to pay me more because you know we no longer have to work with recruiting agencies. I am a magnet for top talent. Yeah, they should be paid more. They should. They should be paid more if you're because because the, here's what we can prove. So you're you're referring to our trends in personal branding national research study. So actually, AJ led the study. I mentioned she's our CEO. She's my wife. She's our she's a co-founder with me at Brand Builders Group. Um, and to share just a, just a couple of the data points here. So we went out. This is an American. This is a U.S. based study. So this is weighted to the U.S. Census Bureau. I'll give you a couple of you know key data points. Um, and we were on Good Morning America recently talking about some of this because the data is extremely compelling. Most when people think of personal branding, you know, they think of like, you know, online marketers and funnels and stuff like that. We do a lot of that. But most of our clients are professional services. You know, they're they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're accountants, they're chiropractors. Um, and then they are executives. We work with billionaires and we work with CEOs and CMOs. We just don't work with companies. We work with a person, right? The founder, the entrepreneur um, is who we work with. But um, so first of all, one of the questions that we asked is, are you more likely to trust someone who has an established personal brand? Because to us, when we hear the word personal brand, we a lot of people hear that and they think like new. They think like online marketing or like, you know, a social media influencer. When we hear the term personal brand, we don't think of that stuff. We think of an old school word. We think of reputation. In fact, we define personal branding simply as the digitization of reputation. That's what it is. The digitization of reputation. Um, influencers and stuff, a lot of, some of that, not a lot of, some of it is about vanity, right? 
what we're not interested in vanity, but we are interested in trust. We are interested in trust. Trust is as old as time as it comes to sales. It's it's the foundation. And so we asked, are you more likely to trust someone who has an established personal brand? 74% of Americans say yes to that question. 74% say I am more likely to trust someone with established personal brand. If you stratify that data and you just look at older millennials, uh, which at the time of the study, older millennials are ages 35 to 44, that number goes up to 85%. 85% of older millennials say they're more likely to trust someone with a personal brand. So if we are in the business, all businesses trust who works for you, who buys from you, how can you recruit somebody, who gives you referrals, it's all trust. And the data conclusively, like in a very irrefutable way, points to the fact that if I, if you have a personal brand, I'm more likely to trust you. This is a really big freaking deal. Um, uh, because that means, and, and we have, we have the data on this. Like I could, I can share it with you. 63% Americans say they are more likely to buy from someone with an established personal brand. 57% of Americans say they are more likely to recommend someone with an established personal brand. 50% of Americans say they are more likely to work for someone who has an established personal brand. Like, um, 49% of Americans say they are more likely to promote someone who has an established personal brand. So from all angles, the power of a personal brand is irrefutable and we now can prove it like in a, you know, basically a scientific way that, that this has real value in the marketplace. Now, com uh, companies are scared of this and they should be. This is a very scary thing. What's the fear? The fear is, if one of my executives builds a personal brand, they could leave and go do their own thing and make money on the side. They could, they could, you know, take people away. That's the same fear that existed in the 1980s about going, why would I train my team? What if I train my people and they leave? Well, you go, well, what if you don't train them and they stay? <laughs> like, right? That's the horrible thing. If you can help your people build a personal brand, what you're doing is adding trust to your organization. It means you can sell faster. You can sell at higher prices. You can recruit better people if you do it in the right, if you do it in the right way. If you, if it is crappy, then yeah, you run the risk of them leaving, but don't be crappy. Be really good. Like be really good at what you do. Have a compelling mission. Contrary to our fear, the fear of the owner is, Oh, this person's going to get so big. They can just go out on their own. That's not true if they care about your mission, if they believe in your company, if they believe in your product, if they believe in your culture. Not everybody wants to run their own thing. It's freaking hard to do it. Like it's not easy to go build a personal brand, right? Like we, we do it and we, we spend a lot of time doing it. But the fastest way to monetize a personal brand for anybody the fastest path to cash is to is to use your personal brand to throw fuel on the thing you're already doing. So if you're a salesperson, building a personal brand doesn't mean you have to write a book and create your own video course and start your own company. You could do that. It's a ton of work. It takes a long time to do it. 
The fastest path to cash is to use your personal brand to drive leads for the thing you already sell that you already get commissioned on that you don't have to do the delivery of. Someone else can do the delivery and there's a whole team and army and department of people who develop the product and service the customer and yada, yada. Like if I'm a sales manager and, and you know, hopefully the, the beautiful part about being in sales is that a lot of times our compensation is tied to our performance. If I can leverage my personal brand to recruit A plus talent, if I can be known in the industry, that's going to help me recruit A plus talent. If, if the people... If the people in the marketplace see how I am developing the personal brands of the people underneath me, people are going to be attracted to that, right? Like there doesn't have to be this fear of, oh my gosh, like they're going to become too big for their britches and they're going to leave us. If they're going to leave you, they're going to leave you. Like that's such a scarcity mindset of going, we have to build a fence around these people to keep them and we want to keep them obscure. No, like build, help them build their career, help them build their income, help them build their cachet. What now, if they leave you, something good will show up as a result of it. But what a lot of them will do is they will, they will, they will become ambassadors for your company. Look, think about how much money you have to spend to buy billboards and to buy, to buy clicks and to buy ads in, 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 in magazines and to sponsor events with your booths and your expos and how much you have to pay a publicist or a PR person to get you featured in media. You can do all that or you can teach your people how to do it for you. The people who already believe in you, who already work for you and work with you, and you can take every single employee in your company and turn them into a marketing machine for your brand and business. It is the fastest, cheapest, most effective media you could ever do because all the people who follow them already trust them. Not everyone who sees a billboard trusts the billboard, but everyone, and on average, I think the average person has like 350 Facebook friends. If you take 350 and multiply it times the number of employees you have, that means you are in within one circle, one degree of connection, probably from tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of people that your company could reach in a much more effective and much more cost-effective way in a much more expedited and efficient way than spending money on traditional mass media dollars. And might you lose some people over time? I don't know, maybe, but, but, you know, it's, it's a lot less guaranteed than the amount of money you dump into traditional media. Um, and just going, this is powerful. And if people, if your employees become the ambassadors of your story, they're going to attract other people. You're going to attract a lot more people than you're going to lose, assuming you have a great company, right? Like uh, assuming you're not trying to screw people, assuming you're not trying to get the most out of them for the least amount of dollars, assuming you're not trying to build a fence around them. If you're actually trying to help the people in your career, like inside of your company, if you actually care about helping them, they will help you and everybody wins. When people leave, that happens. People are leaving anyways, right? Like people are leaving anyways. Uh, if you can, if, if, if anything, you go while they're here, can we, can we get the maximum awareness for our company in the, in the, in the, in the meantime? But yeah, if someone has a following, they add value to a company tremendously. So 
there's probably a couple CEOs listening to this and saying, I'm all in, I'm with you. I get it. And I see the value of, of having a sales and marketing leader that have their personal brand. It's a asymmetric, asymmetrical return for the business. Yeah. But I'm beginning to wonder when does, when, how do I handle when the, that we've had some lift, some attributable lift to their brand being a part of ours. Okay. But in certain areas, they're starting to slide. And I do care about them. I want them to stay here because I care about them as a person and because they are still being impactful in the business. But I'm starting to wonder which is more important for them. Is it success in the role? Or are they going through the motions here and has their primary priority become likes and followers? I totally get the question. It's a totally fair question. It is, but it, like everything, it's a fear. It is false evidence appearing real. Here's the reality. If you feel that way, have the conversation and ask them the question. Is your priority here? Or is it somewhere else? And here's the thing. If their priority is somewhere else, let them go. Like, let them go. Let them go do the thing they want to do. Like, if that is the, the calling on their heart, let them do it. The reason they're doing it in secret is because they feel like if they're found out, like you're going to like try to trap them or you're going to penalize them. or and, and if you're just open about it, and they go, yeah, that's what I want to do. Go, great. Go do that. Let's create a plan for you to go do it. And let's create a plan for me to get the next person into your role and have them be successful. Because we want to work with people who want to be here. And that's the thing that I think that, that executives and leaders miss. There's such a scarcity mentality around people. It's just like, oh, I, if I lose this person, it's all going to fall apart. Well, number one, if you build great processes, that should never be the case. The stronger your processes, the, the less dependent you become on people. You don't want to be dependent on anyone, starting with yourself, by the way. The, the number one de, the risk of a company is an over-dependency on the founder, right? So we got to install processes and in people to make the business not dependent on any one person inside the company, right? So we can counterbalance that with effective processes. But... Um, you should make the decision that you want people working for you who want to work for you. Like one of the most expensive decisions in the world, one of the biggest sucks of money in the world is people working at a job they hate. You don't want someone working for you who doesn't want to be there. It's costing you thousands, millions of dollars. The average American self-admits to wasting 2.09 hours every single day. And in the U.S., according to the Department of Labor, the Bureau of Statistics, this was a few years ago, the average U.S. employee, this is all the way back in like 2012, was making like $40,000 a year. It's probably more now. But let's say at $40,000 a year, if someone's wasting two hours out of every day, that means that 25% of the salary that you're paying them is wasted. 25% of your most expensive line item on your P&L, which is salaries and wages and, and is being wasted. You don't want people working for you who don't want to be there. What you want to do is become an amazing place to work, not getting an award for it, 
actually being a place that's cool, a place that's fun, a place that gives a crap about people. If you do that, that will be enough to attract and retain awesome people. Awesome people are smart enough to realize when they stumble across something unique, when they stumble across something special. They're also smart enough to realize when somebody doesn't have their best interest at heart and when someone's trying to hold on to them um, and when somebody feels dependent upon them. I, I think it's, it is an, it's an abundance mentality. I get the fear. I have the fear myself. Like I, I very much get the fear, but it's going. And if somebody, look, if somebody has, if somebody, here's the other thing. If somebody has the desire to really be a personal brand, like if someone has the desire and the chops to stand in front of a camera or stand on a stage and light up a room or, or, you know, produce videos and content and writing, Here's the truth, and almost always the truth is it is much faster for them to get to that point by partnering with the company they work with and leveraging the resources and the platform that the company has than for them to go out and build it on their own. So if you can find a, a mutual alignment of incentives, which is what sales is all about, right, is like creating a mutual alignment of incentives, if you can create that opportunity for the person, they will build a bigger audience by being with you, especially if you're a, a well-known company, especially if, if you're a Google or an Oracle or a, you know, but even if you're a, a local regional company, you've got thousands of customers, hundreds of employees. There's credibility that comes from them being associated with your company. And by the way, the more people from your company are out speaking in public about your company, the more that grows the brand awareness and the brand value of your company which elevates everybody in the company. So it's it's just such a short-term mentality of the the fear of like oh my gosh they're going to leave me. The there's there's so much more value from having an open hand here. It's the same thing, it's the exact same thing. It's the exact same scarcity that your salespeople have where they they have to make the sale to this to this one person. Why? Because they only have three people in their pipeline and they just, they have to pressure them and manipulate them and overpromise because they only have three people in their pipeline. Go out and get more people in the pipeline. Get referrals. Do, do prospecting. Like, and, and you will, you won't have such a scarcity mentality around, I must close the sale. Companies need to do the same thing. Don't have such a scarcity mentality around, oh, there's only one good person in the world who can fill this position. There's, millions of people who can fill that position build an awesome company you won't have to worry about it they'll stay with you last question and this comes from maybe a, a slightly different perspective uh and i would listen to your conversation with cameron harold and cameron talked about his woes of being the number two not having the brand you know working under a company where the CEO did have a big personal brand, it added value to the exit. It added value to customer acquisition. When the show was over and they turned off the lights for that company, he, he didn't have a narrative. He didn't, he wasn't associated with the success and the exit. And so I'm wondering what you would say to, you know, a sales leader or a marketing leader that's listening to this that says, well, that's my situation. I'm definitely riding a rocket ship. This company is going somewhere. I have a small piece of equity, but there is no room. Like my CEO is 
on LinkedIn, has 30 plus thousand followers, is posting content every day. I don't know how to carve out my space in this narrative. But the, but I hear from Cameron, and I think you would agree, and I know firsthand the risk of if you don't attach yourself to that story, forget the exit and, and the monetary gains from that. Being a part of the story pays longer-term dividends out the course of your career, and there's far more at stake by not finding a way to navigate a big magnanimous CEO and their brand and finding your own lane. So what's your question? How do I do that? How, how do I avoid the outcome that, that Cameron talked about, which is all, all the number twos that support this really – important executive that has done a good job of building a brand, but feel uh, like there's no space, ill-equipped, or their reservations about creating their own brand under or in conjunction with a bigger brand that already exists? I mean, the answer is turn on the camera and start talking. Like, there, the, that is another mental prison of your own construction. The idea that there is not enough room for me is insane. It makes no logical sense. It's the same. That'd be the same as going, well, you know, Stephen Covey wrote a book on time management in 1989 that sold 25 million copies. There's no room for me to talk about productivity, right? People do this all the time. I'm not, I'm not saying it. it's very common, but it's a fear. It is fake. It is false evidence appearing real. We get, we convince ourselves of these things that are not at all true. I mean, there is plenty of room for you. I mean, we have, we, there is more opportunity than ever before to push a button and reach the entire world. So you just start doing it. Add value to your community. Turn on the camera, open up a Word doc and start typing. Like whatever you got to do, you just start publishing and you just start hitting publish. And yeah, this is where I do think it's smart for, it's smart for people. If you are a number two and you see the company's trajectory, I would, I would definitely want to tie into the brand. Again, if you have a great company, the employees are going to want to tie into it. They want to be a part of it, right? People who work at Google, it's the number one thing they've ever done in their life is worked at Google. Like they, they put it on their resume. You want to be that company. Um, but don't let anyone, you know, or some fake imaginary boundary say, Oh, there's not room for me. There's totally room for you. You're, it, it's not about, room with your founder or, or or the internet like just turn it on and start adding value but i think that's an example of creative avoidance what we sometimes do is we allow ourselves to believe excuses and not realize there is a there's a payoff which is that i don't have to do the work i get to have this justifiable story that oh i didn't have a choice that i was in the shadow of someone else you're not in anyone's shadow no one's telling you to, no one's disallowing you to turn on the camera or post something on LinkedIn or post something on social. Nobody's telling you you can't do that. You know, they might be saying, hey, here's some guidelines for it, but like turn it on and do it and add value. Add value to people's lives. I mean, if you just add value to people's lives in every direction, it always comes back to you. We know that from being in sales, right? Like, and from being executives and entrepreneurs, the more people we add value to, the more value shows back up in our life. Um, so don't allow yourself to believe that you're in anyone's shadow, like whether it's your boss or your competitor or some other random person who has a million followers and you go, Oh, they already wrote the book on blank. So why could I, that's so silly. 
um, there, there is, there is lots and lots of room. And the key is, even if you felt like there wasn't add value to one person, like there is one person that's going to watch that video. One person that's going to read that article. If you really care about impacting lives, impact the one person. If you find yourself going, Oh, this is a waste of time. Well, you should check your own motivation because your own motivation might not really be impacting lives. Your own motivation might be more closely connected to fame and our own self, you know, centered pursuits of going, oh, if I can't reach 10,000 people, why would I even bother doing it? The reason you'd bother doing it is because there's one person on the other side of that camera. There's one person reading that article. There is one person out there right now who is looking for answers to questions that you already know, who is, is struggling with problems that you've already solved. And, and you, you've got to remember and think about and serve that one person. Um, and so no one's blocking you from that. I mean, if there has ever been a time in history where none of us are being blocked from our chance to get the message out to the world, it is right now. Like none of us have that excuse. There's no gatekeepers. There's no major corporations. There's no someone in an ivory tower who has to sign off and say you're good enough. All you got to do is pick up your camera, pick up your phone, turn on the camera and push a button and you start, you start broadcasting. And if you have something valuable to say, people will show up. So there, there are, thank you so much. There are probably loads of folks that just heard this conversation and they want to go binge Rory Vaden. Where do you point them? <laughs> I feel like this has been a little bit of a butt kicking conversation. I love it. Yeah. Always, always, always the case. And, and, you know, I only do that because we care. We care deeply. You know, Brand Builders Group serves the mission driven messenger. We serve the person who actually gives a crap about making a difference in the world. And nobody can stop you from doing that except you. And that is why, you know, sometimes we got to slap people around a little bit. Um, because the person that stops us is ourselves. We're the ones who build our own mental prisons. But um, if you, we'd love to talk to you. Like if you want to build your personal brand, um, we do a first call for free with everybody. If you go to freebrandcall.com slash RV, so freebrandcall.com slash RV, you can fill out a form, request a, request a free call. We'll connect you with someone on our team. Um, and even if you don't want to do a free call, you can fill that out and we'll connect. We'll start, we'll start introducing you to a bunch of free training that we have. Um, but if you feel a calling on your heart to, to, to share a message with the world. We believe that the calling on your heart is the result of a signal that's being sent out by someone else who needs you more than you need them. That's where that comes from. We believe that it's not in vain. We believe that it is in service. And, and our job is to help you cl clarify your positioning and to help facilitate that connection between the calling on your heart and the person out there who's sending that signal, who needs the expertise, the wisdom, the encouragement, the insight, the, the, the motivation, uh, and the knowledge that you have, um, to share with them. So listen to that, that, that if not everybody feels it, if you feel it, it's because it's, it's real. And if you're an entrepreneur or an executive, it will it will help your business tremendously. Um, if, and if you're an employee, it will help the business you work for tremendously and it will help you tremendously. So we, we believe that you should follow that. Thank you so much, Roy. I appreciate your time. 
Always, my brother. All right, man. Thank you. Music from this episode is from my good buddy, Justin Adams. You can listen to Justin's music at Spotify or Apple Music. Thank you, Justin, for the music. And thank you for checking out another episode of The Revenue Harvest.